Mosiah chapter 29. During the first nine verses of this chapter, Mosiah struggles with his people trying to figure out how best to select a successor for the throne. It is not until verse 11 that Mosiah tells the Nephites what the solution should be. However, he doesn't mention that this came as a revelation from the Lord. It is clear over in Helaman chapter 4 verse 22 that we learn that the Lord commanded Mosiah to no longer have kings to rule over the people. Instead, they are to have a system of judges set up over the people. We begin this chapter with Mosiah trying to get advice from the people as to the best method of selecting a successor. Now when Mosiah had done this, he sent out throughout all the land among all the people, desiring to know their will concerning who should be their king. And it came to pass that the voice of the people came, saying, We are desirous that Aaron thy son should be our king and our ruler. It is interesting that Mosiah's son Aaron was very popular among the people, but that didn't solve the problem. Mosiah explains why. Now Aaron had gone up to the land of Nephi. Therefore the king could not confer the kingdom upon him, neither would Aaron take upon him the kingdom. Neither were any of the sons of Mosiah willing to take upon them the kingdom. No doubt there were suggestions that the people be asked to submit alternative names, but Mosiah knew that this could lead to civil war. He therefore decided to tell them the reason for his great concern. Therefore King Mosiah sent again among the people. Yea, even a written word sent he among the people, and these were the words that were written, saying, Behold, O ye my people, or my brethren, for I esteem you as such. I desire that ye should consider the cause which ye are called to consider, for ye are desirous to have a king. Now I declare unto you that he to whom the kingdom doth rightly belong has declined, and will not take upon him the kingdom. And now if there should be another appointed in his stead, Behold, I fear there would rise contentions among you. And who knoweth but what my son, to whom the kingdom doth belong, should turn to be angry and draw away a part of this people after him, which would cause wars and contentions among you, which would be the cause of shedding much blood and perverting the way of the Lord, yea, and destroy the souls of many people. Now I say unto you, let us be wise and consider these things. For we have no right to destroy my son, neither should we have any right to destroy another if he should be appointed in his stead. And if my son should turn again to his pride and vain things, he would recall the things which he had said and claim his right to the kingdom, which would cause him and also this people to commit much sin. Now let us be wise, and look forward to these things, and do that which will make for the peace of this people. Mosiah now has a proposal to make to the people. He didn't think it was wise to tell them that his proposal had come directly from the Lord, since there were strong dissident groups around the country, and if Mosiah revealed where his plan originated, there might have been an immediate uprising. He therefore decided to appeal to their reason, so they would see the definite advantages of abandoning the appointment of kings and approve of this new system of electing judges to rule over them. Therefore, I will be your king the remainder of my days. Nevertheless, let us appoint judges to judge this people according to our law. And we will newly arrange the affairs of this people, for we will appoint wise men to be judges, that will judge this people according to the commandments of God. Mosiah begins by pointing out that there is tremendous risks in being ruled by kings. He points out that historically they have had experience with both good and bad kings. He first mentions his father, King Benjamin. Now it is better that a man should be judged of God than of man, for the judgments of God are always just, but the judgments of man are not always just. Therefore, if it were possible that you could have just men to be your kings, who would establish the laws of God, 
and judge this people according to his commandments? Yea, if ye could have men for your kings who would do even as my father Benjamin did for this people, I say unto you, if this could always be the case, then it would be expedient that ye should always have kings to rule over you. Mosiah then describes his own anxiety to be a good king. And even I myself have labored with all the power and faculties which I have possessed to teach you the commandments of God and to establish peace throughout the land, that there should be no wars nor contentions, no stealing nor plundering nor murdering, nor any manner of iniquity. And whosoever has committed iniquity, him have I punished according to the crime which he has committed, according to the law which has been given to us by our fathers. Now I say unto you that because all men are not just, it is not expedient that ye should have a king or kings to rule over you. For behold, how much iniquity doth one wicked king cause to be committed! Yea, and what great destruction! Mosiah now refers to the notorious evils of a bad king who is well known to the people. Yea, remember King Noah, his wickedness and his abominations, and also the wickedness and abominations of his people. Behold, what great destruction did come upon them, and also because of their iniquities they were brought into bondage. And were it not for the interposition of their all-wise Creator, and this because of their sincere repentance, they must unavoidably remain in bondage until now. But behold, he did deliver them, because they did humble themselves before him. And because they cried mightily unto him, he did deliver them out of bondage. And thus doth the Lord work with his power in all cases among the children of men, extending the arm of mercy towards them that put their trust in him. The greatest difficulty with a bad king is that he cannot be dethroned without the shedding of much blood. And behold, now I say unto you, ye cannot dethrone an iniquitous king, save it be through much contention and the shedding of much blood. For behold, he has his friends in iniquity, and he keepeth his guards about him, and he teareth up the laws of those who have reigned in righteousness before him and he trampleth under his feet the commandments of God, and he enacteth laws, and sendeth them forth among his people, yea, laws after the manner of his own wickedness. And whosoever doth not obey his laws, he causeth to be destroyed. And whosoever doth rebel against him, he will send his armies against them to war. And if he can, he will destroy them. And thus an unrighteous king doth pervert the ways of all righteousness. Mosiah now feels he has made his point, that there is no justification for suffering the risks that are inherently involved in a system of monarchy. Therefore he wants to make a proposal. Now behold, I say unto you, it is not expedient that such abominations should come upon you. Therefore choose you by the voice of this people, judges, that ye may be judged according to the laws which have been given you by our fathers, which are correct, and which were given them by the hand of the Lord. Now it is not common that the voice of the people desireth anything contrary to that which is right, but it is common for the lesser part of the people to desire that which is not right. Therefore this shall ye observe and make it your law, to do your business by the voice of the people. Mosiah sees only two weaknesses in electing a system of judges. The first problem arises if the people become wicked and choose wicked judges. And if the time comes that the voice of the people doth choose iniquity, then is the time that the judgments of God will come upon you. Yea, then is the time he will visit you with great destruction, even as he has hitherto visited this land. But what if the judges become corrupt? How can the people be protected from corrupt judges? And now if ye have judges, and they do not judge you according to the law which has been given, ye can cause that they may be judged of a higher judge. 
If your higher judges do not judge righteous judgments, ye shall cause that a small number of your lower judges should be gathered together, and they shall judge your higher judges according to the voice of the people. Of course, the capstone to a successful system of judges is working it out from generation to generation in fear of the Lord. A complete essay on how the system of judges worked under God's law can be found in Treasures of the Book of Mormon, Volume 2, beginning on page 39. And I command you to do these things in the fear of the Lord. And I command you to do these things, and that ye have no king, that if these people commit sins and iniquities, they shall be answered upon their own heads. Now Mosiah points out a fallacy in the monarchical system that the people may not even have thought about. That is the unfairness of heaping the blame on the head of the king for any mistakes that are made. He feels that this is unfair to both the people and the king. He wants to set up a nation of liberty in which the burden of making decisions is shared with all the people. Here is how he said it. For behold, I say unto you, the sins of many people have been caused by the iniquities of their kings. Therefore their iniquities are answered upon the heads of their kings. Now I desire that this inequality should be no more in this land, especially among this my people. But I desire that this land be a land of liberty, and every man may enjoy his rights and privileges alike. So long as the Lord sees fit that we may live and inherit the land, yea, even as long as any of our posterity remains upon the face of the land. And many more things did King Mosiah write unto them, unfolding unto them all the trials and troubles of a righteous king, yea, all the travails of soul for their people, and also all the murmurings of the people to their king, and he explained it all unto them. And he told them that these things ought not to be, but that the burden should come upon all the people, that every man might bear his part. Now he wanted to remind them once again how risky it is to be ruled under a monarchy, and thus he concluded his epistle to the people. And he also unfolded unto them all the disadvantages they labored under by having an unrighteous king to rule over them. Yea, all his iniquities and abominations and all the wars and contentions and bloodshed, and the stealing and the plundering and the committing of whoredoms, and all manner of iniquities which cannot be enumerated, telling them that these things ought not to be, that they were expressly repugnant to the commandments of God. When we think about it, this epistle was a tremendous gamble when it was addressed to the people who had never known any form of government except a monarchy. So, what was the result? Now it came to pass, after King Mosiah had sent these things forth among the people, they were convinced of the truth of his words. Therefore they relinquished their desires for a king, and became exceedingly anxious that every man should have an equal chance throughout all the land. Yea, and every man expressed a willingness to answer for his own sins. Therefore it came to pass that they assembled themselves together in bodies throughout the land to cast in their voices concerning who should be their judges, to judge them according to the law which had been given them. And they were exceedingly rejoiced because of the liberty which had been granted unto them. After this tremendous political achievement, Mosiah was hailed as a hero. It says, And they did wax strong in love towards Mosiah. Yea, they did esteem him more than any other man, for they did not look upon him as a tyrant who was seeking for gain, yea, for that lucre which doth corrupt the soul, for he had not exacted riches of them, neither had he delighted in the shedding of blood, but he had established peace in the land, and he had granted unto his people that they should be delivered from all manner of bondage, Therefore they did esteem him, yea, exceedingly beyond measure. So the plan God had revealed to Mosiah was accepted, and the people prepared to put it into operation. And it came to pass that they did appoint judges to rule over them, or to judge them according to the law. And this they did throughout all the land. 
Of course, the most important election of all the judges would be the selection of the chief judge. Now we find out who the people selected. A portrayal of the new judge will be found in the Treasures of the Book of Mormon, volume 2, page 156. And it came to pass that Alma was appointed to be the first chief judge, he being also the high priest, his father having conferred the office upon him, and having given him the charge concerning all the affairs of the church. And now it came to pass that Alma did walk in the ways of the Lord, and he did keep his commandments, and he did judge righteous judgments, and there was continual peace through the land. And thus commenced the reign of the judges throughout all the land of Zarahemla, among all the people who were called the Nephites, and Alma was the first and chief judge. So the Nephite people had just gone through a peaceful revolution. Now Mormon wants to conclude this great historical epic by telling us that the two great leaders of that generation had now passed away, and a new order of things has been established. Concerning Alma the Elder, he says, And now it came to pass that his father died, being eighty and two years old, having lived to fulfill the commandments of God. And it came to pass that Mosiah died also, in the thirty and third year of his reign, being sixty and three years old, making in the whole five hundred and nine years from the time Lehi left Jerusalem. And thus ended the reign of the kings over the people of Nephi, and thus ended the days of Alma, who was the founder of their church. A complete summary of the lives of both Mosiah and Alma are set forth in Treasures of the Book of Mormon, Volume 2, beginning on page 158. Alma, Chapter 1. The Book of Alma opens in 91 B.C. and is the largest book in the entire Book of Mormon. It comprises nearly one-third of the entire text. The Book of Alma commences just after the two great leaders of the Nephites, King Mosiah and the prophet Alma, had died. Prior to their passing, the young son of the prophet Alma had been chosen to carry on the dual assignment of governing the people and serving as head of the church. In this record, we will refer to him as Alma the Younger. Young Alma is believed to have been about 30 years of age when he received this tremendous burden of responsibility. Now it came to pass that in the first year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi, from this time forward, King Mosiah, having gone the way of all the earth, having warred a good warfare, walking uprightly before God, leaving none to reign in his stead, nevertheless he had established laws, and they were acknowledged by the people. Therefore they were obliged to abide by the laws which he had made. The greatest political legacy left to young Alma by the good king Mosiah was a new constitution providing for a government of elected judges rather than a king. Mosiah had also provided a code of laws which was based on the Mosaic Code and which had been acknowledged or voted upon by the Nephite people. Since they had approved the code while Mosiah was still alive, the Nephites were legally obliged to abide by these laws during the administration of Alma. And it came to pass that in the first year of the reign of Alma in the judgment seat, there was a man brought before him to be judged, a man who was large and was noted for his much strength. The first major case to come before Alma involved a member of the church who had committed murder. And he had gone about among the people, preaching to them that which he termed to be the word of God, bearing down against the church, declaring unto the people that every priest and teacher ought to become popular, and they ought not to labor with their hands, but that they ought to be supported by the people. And he also testified unto the people that all mankind should be saved at the last day, and that they need not fear nor tremble, but that they might lift up their heads and rejoice, for the Lord had created all men, and had also redeemed all men, and in the end all men should have eternal life. 
We learn from verse 15 that this man's name was Nehor. He had been going up and down among the congregations of the church, teaching five false doctrines. First, he said the elders of the church should be selected because they were good speakers and popular like himself. Secondly, he said those who labored in the church should make that their official occupation. Third, they should not have to go out and labor with their hands for a living. Fourth, they should be paid for their services as elders of the church. Fifth, they should teach only popular doctrines. Instead of teaching repentance and obedience to the strict commandments of God, they should teach that God had not only created all men, he had also redeemed all men and guaranteed every person eternal life. Amazingly, these theories of Nehor did away with the doctrine of hell, the doctrine of divine judgment, the doctrine of God's just punishment of the wicked, and the doctrine of repentance and baptism for the remission of sins. One would have thought that the members of the church would have immediately seen through these apostate doctrines, but here is what happened. And it came to pass that he did teach these things so much that many did believe on his words, even so many that they began to support him and give him money. And he began to be lifted up in the pride of his heart, and to wear very costly apparel, yea, and even began to establish a church after the manner of his preaching. As one might have suspected, Nehor began to set up a church of his own, a church in direct competition with the true church of Christ. Then a tragedy occurred. And it came to pass, as he was going to preach to those who believed on his word, he met a man who belonged to the church of God, yea, even one of their teachers. And he began to contend with him sharply that he might lead away the people of the church. But the man withstood him, admonishing him with the words of God. Now the name of the man was Gideon, and it was he who was an instrument in the hands of God in delivering the people of Limhi out of bondage. Now because Gideon withstood him with the words of God, he was wroth with Gideon and drew his sword and began to smite him. Now Gideon, being stricken with many years, therefore he was not able to withstand his blows. Therefore he was slain by the sword. Next to the prophet Alma, there was probably no one in Zarahemla whose murder would have aroused the anger of the people more than the killing of the righteous and heroic Gideon. Thirty years earlier, he had rescued the lost Nephites, or people of Limhi, and led them out of bondage under the Lamanites. And the man who slew him was taken by the people of the church and was brought before Alma to be judged according to the crimes which he had committed. Notice that the people did not wait for the police or anybody else. It is the law in almost any country that those who witness a crime committed in their presence have the authority to seize the culprit and put him under arrest. And it came to pass that he stood before Alma and pleaded for himself with much boldness. Notice that Nehor was arrogant and defiant. He didn't even want an attorney but insisted on pleading his own case. However, when Alma had heard the charges and listened to Nehor's contemptuous reply, the chief judge was ready to render his verdict and pronounce judgment. In Volume 2 of The Treasures of the Book of Mormon, page 164, is a portrayal of Nehor being judged by Alma. But Alma said unto him, Behold, this is the first time that priestcraft has been introduced among this people. And behold, thou art not only guilty of priestcraft, but hast endeavored to enforce it by the sword. And were priestcraft to be enforced among this people, it would prove their entire destruction. And thou hast shed the blood of a righteous man, yea, a man who has done much good among this people. And were we to spare thee, his blood would come upon us for vengeance. Therefore, thou art condemned to die according to the law which has been given us by Mosiah, our last king. And it has been acknowledged by this people. Therefore, this people must abide by the law. 
In rendering his verdict, Alma explained the responsibility of the people to execute anyone who has deliberately shed innocent blood. In modern times, there are a number of states and sometimes whole nations who prohibit capital punishment. These nations are violating a strict commandment of God. Here is the way the Lord gave his divine law to protect human life right after the great flood. The Lord said, quote, At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Unquote. This is Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6. Here is the way the Lord gave this commandment to Moses. Quote, but if any man hate his neighbor, and lie in wait for him, and rise up against him, and smite him mortally that he die, and fleeth to one of these cities of refuge, then the elders of the city shall send and fetch him that he may die. Thine eye shall not pity him, but thou shalt put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, that it may go well with you. Unquote. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 11 to 13. And here is the way the Lord said it in modern times. Quote, and now behold, I speak unto the church, thou shalt not kill. And he that kills shall not have forgiveness in this world nor in the world to come. And again I say, Thou shalt not kill, but he that killeth shall die. Unquote. That's Doctrine and Covenants, section 42, verses 18 to 19. Some people are opposed to capital punishment because they say the people should not kill, and neither should the state kill. But the Lord apparently feels that when society does not take the life of a murderer in accordance with God's divine command, it makes the life of the criminal more sacred than the life of the victim. To keep human life sacred, murderers are to be dispatched back to the spirit world. If society fails to do this, then her judges become parties to the crime. This is what Alma was saying. If the members of the church had not seized Nehor after seeing him kill Gideon, and if Alma had refused to sentence Nehor to die, both Alma and the members of the church would have been under condemnation of the Lord. And it came to pass that they took him, and his name was Nehor, and they carried him upon the top of the hill Manti. And there he was caused, or rather did acknowledge, between the heavens and the earth, that what he had taught to the people was contrary to the word of God, and there he suffered an ignominious death. It is interesting that when Nehor was carried to the top of the hill Manti and saw that he was about to be executed, his arrogance suddenly collapsed. Confronted with the fact that he must now face God and his hour of judgment, Nehor confessed. He confessed that everything he had taught was a lie. The scripture says Nehor suffered an ignominious death. Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 22 indicates that this would be by hanging. Nevertheless, this did not put an end to the spreading of priestcraft through the land, for there were many who loved the vain things of the world, and they went forth preaching false doctrines, and this they did for the sake of riches and honor. It is amazing how many of Nehor's followers continued to promote his apostate church, even though he admitted its doctrines were based on lies. It says that these people promoted this church because of the riches and honor. Nevertheless, they durst not lie, if it were known, for fear of the law, for liars were punished. Therefore they pretended to preach according to their belief, and now the law could have no power on any man for his belief. It is interesting that the members of the apostate church knew they were teaching lies, but they got around it by pretending these were just their beliefs. The law did not allow anyone to be punished for his beliefs. This twisting of the law to cover up lies is a common practice in modern times. Certain attorneys, politicians, or members of the press who are paid high fees to twist the truth 
or twist the plain meaning of the law are sometimes called spinmasters. And they durst not steal for fear of the law, for such were punished. Neither durst they rob nor murder, for he that murdered was punished unto death. But it came to pass that whosoever did not belong to the church of God began to persecute those that did belong to the church of God and had taken upon them the name of Christ. Yea, they did persecute them and afflict them with all manner of words, and this because of their humility, because they were not proud in their own eyes, and because they did impart the word of God one with another, without money and without price. Now there was a strict law among the people of the church that there should not any man belonging to the church arise and persecute those that did not belong to the church, and that there should be no persecution among themselves. The members of the church were under a strict ruling that they were not to retaliate when non-members of the church persecuted them. However, the bitter persecution by the apostates and members of Nehor's church became more than some members of the true church could endure. Nevertheless, there were many among them who began to be proud and began to contend warmly with their adversaries, even unto blows. Yea, they would smite one another with their fists. Now this was in the second year of the reign of Alma, and it was a cause of much affliction to the church. Yea, it was the cause of much trial with the church, for the hearts of many were hardened, and their names were blotted out, that they were remembered no more among the people of God. And also many withdrew themselves from among them. Now this was a great trial to those that did stand fast in the faith. Nevertheless, they were steadfast and immovable in keeping the commandments of God. And they bore with patience the persecution which was heaped upon them. This rising tide of bitter persecution and heated contention began to play havoc with the church. But as always happens, there is a solid, hard core of believers who held to the faith, and they met together often. And when the priests left their labor to impart the word of God unto the people, the people also left their labors to hear the word of God. And when the priest had imparted unto them the word of God, they all returned again diligently unto their labors. And the priest, not esteeming himself above his hearers, for the preacher was no better than the hearer, neither was the teacher any better than the learner. And thus they were all equal, and they did all labor every man according to his strength. And they did impart of their substance every man according to that which he had, to the poor and the needy and the sick and the afflicted. And they did not wear costly apparel, yet they were neat and comely. And thus they did establish the affairs of the church. And thus they began to have continual peace again, notwithstanding all their persecutions. The faithful practice of the basic and essential principles of the gospel had a very salutary effect. And now, because of the steadiness of the church, they began to be exceeding rich, having abundance of all things whatsoever they stood in need, and abundance of flocks and herds and fatlings of every kind, and also abundance of grain and of gold and of silver and of precious things, and abundance of silk and fine-twined linen, and all manner of good homely cloth. And thus, in their prosperous circumstances, they did not send away any who were naked, or that were hungry, or that were athirst, or that were sick, or that had not been nourished. And they did not set their hearts upon riches. Therefore they were liberal to all, both old and young, both bond and free, both male and female, whether out of the church or in the church having no respect to persons as to those who stood in need. And thus they did prosper and become far more wealthy than those who did not belong to their church. It was interesting what happened to the rest of the people who had nothing but disdain for the pious practices of the true church. For those who did not belong to their church did indulge themselves in sorceries, and in idolatry, or idleness, and in babblings, and in envyings, and strife, wearing costly apparel, being lifted up in the pride of their own eyes, persecuting, lying, thieving, robbing, 
committing whoredoms and murdering and all manner of wickedness. Nevertheless, the law was put in force upon all those who did transgress it, inasmuch as it was possible. Now there is a great lesson to be learned from the last verse of this chapter. Alma's only recourse to keep the whole structure of their society from collapsing was to strictly enforce the law and make every man suffer for the consequences of what he had done. This verse says that only then did the reprobate elements, quote, stand more still, unquote. And it came to pass that by thus exercising the law upon them, every man suffering according to that which he had done, they became more still, and durst not commit any wickedness if it were known. Therefore there was much peace among the people of Nephi until the fifth year of the reign of the judges. Alma chapter 2 Just about the time Alma had the Nephites settled down to an orderly pattern of living, a new radical contention broke out among them in the fifth year of Alma's administration as chief judge. And it came to pass, in the commencement of the fifth year of their reign, there began to be a contention among the people, for a certain man being called Amlesi, he being a very cunning man, yea, a wise man as to the wisdom of the world, he being after the order of the man that slew Gideon by the sword, who was executed according to the law. This Amlesi was not just out to promote the church of the apostate Nehor. He had far bigger ambitions. Now this Amlesi had by his cunning drawn away much people after him, even so much that they began to be very powerful, and they began to endeavor to establish Amlesi to be king over the people. Now this was alarming to the people of the church, and also to all those who had not been drawn away after the persuasions of Amlesi, for they knew that according to their law that such things must be established by the voice of the people. The very fact that the constitution which had been adopted under the prophet Mosiah made the selection of the judges according to the voice of the people offered Amlesi an opportunity to somehow seize power over the whole people. Therefore, if it were possible that Amlesi should gain the voice of the people, he being a wicked man, would deprive them of their rights and privileges of the church, for it was his intent to destroy the church of God. And it came to pass that the people assembled themselves together throughout all the land, every man according to his mind, whether it were for or against Amlesi, in separate bodies having much dispute and wonderful contentions one with another. And thus they did assemble themselves together to cast in their voices concerning the matter. And they were laid before the judges. And it came to pass that the voice of the people came against Amlesi, that he was not made king over the people. This election must have been an agonizing crisis for Amma. But the defeat of the followers of Amlesi did not settle the issue. Now this did cause much joy in the hearts of those who were against him. But Amlesi did stir up those who were in his favor to anger against those who were not in his favor. And it came to pass that they gathered themselves together and did consecrate Amlesi to be their king. Now when Amlesi was made king over them, he commanded them that they should take up arms against their brethren. And this he did that he might subject them to him. It was obvious that Amlesi had no respect for the Constitution or the voice of the majority of the people. What he could not get legally, he determined to acquire by force of arms. Now the people of Amlesi were distinguished by the name of Amlesi being called Amlesites, and the remainder were called Nephites, or the people of God. Therefore the people of the Nephites were aware of the intent of the Amlicites, and therefore they did prepare to meet them, yea, they did arm themselves with swords, and with scimitars, and with bows, and with arrows, and with stones, and with slings, and with all manner of weapons of war of every kind. And thus they were prepared to meet the Amlicites at the time of their coming. And there were appointed captains, and higher captains, and chief captains, according to their numbers. In organizing the Nephites to defend themselves against the Amlicites, they had, quote, captains, higher captains, and chief captains. 
Moses had a similar arrangement with captains over tens, fifties, and hundreds. It would be interesting to know if the Nephites were organized in the same manner. And it came to pass that Amlici did arm his men with all manner of weapons of war of every kind. And he also appointed rulers and leaders over his people to lead them to war against their brethren. When the Amlicites had mobilized their army, they showed up on the east side of the Sidon River. Zarahemla, of course, was on the west side, which meant the entire army of the Nephites would have to come across the river in order to meet the Amlicites. And it came to pass that the Amlicites came upon the hill Amnihu, which was east of the river Sidon, which ran by the land of Zarahemla. And there they began to make war with the Nephites. Now Alma, being the chief judge and the governor of the people of Nephi, therefore he went up with his people, yea, with his captains and chief captains, yea, at the head of his armies against the Amlicites to battle. Politically and spiritually speaking, there was no more essential and valuable personality among all the Nephites than Alma. He was chief judge, president of the church, custodian of the sacred Nephite records, official historian, prophet, seer, and revelator. As chief judge, he could have appointed anyone to be commander of the army, but he did not. He volunteered to become commander-in-chief of the Nephite armies himself. Fortunately, he was in the prime of life, but in those days a commander did not send forth the troops. He led them, and the battle was fought in hand-to-hand combat. What a fantastic assignment for a prophet of God! And they began to slay the Amlicites upon the hill east of Sidon, And the Amlicites did contend with the Nephites with great strength, insomuch that many of the Nephites did fall before the Amlicites. Nevertheless, the Lord did strengthen the hand of the Nephites, that they slew the Amlicites with great slaughter, that they began to flee before them. And it came to pass that the Nephites did pursue the Amlicites all that day, and did slay them with much slaughter, insomuch that there were slain of the Amlicites, twelve thousand five hundred thirty and two souls. And there were slain of the Nephites six thousand five hundred sixty and two souls. And it came to pass that when Alma could pursue the Amlicites no longer, he caused that his people should pitch their tents in the valley of Gideon, the valley being called after that Gideon who was slain by the hand of Nehor with the sword. And in this valley the Nephites did pitch their tents for the night. Although the Nephites finally put the Amlicites to flight, the Nephites followed them southward, slaying as many as possible. When nightfall forced the two armies to separate and pitch their tents, Alma apparently had his officers go back and count the casualties on both sides. It had really been a terrible slaughter. They counted 12,522 Amlicites who had been slain and 6,562 Nephites. Alma wisely sent spies to see whether the Amlicites would steal away in the night, and if so, which way they would go. When these spies returned, they had the worst possible news. And Alma sent spies to follow the remnant of the Amlicites, that he might know of their plans and their plots, whereby he might guard himself against them that he might preserve his people from being destroyed. Now those whom he had sent out to watch the camp of the Amlicites were called Zerum and Amnor and Manti and Limher. These were they who went out with their men to watch the camp of the Amlicites. And it came to pass that on the morrow they returned into the camp of the Nephites in great haste, being greatly astonished and struck with much fear, saying, Behold, we follow the camp of the Amlicites, and to our great astonishment, in the land of Minon, above the land of Zarahemla, in the course of the land of Nephi, we saw a numerous host of the Lamanites, and behold, the Amlicites have joined them, and they are upon our brethren in that land, and they are fleeing before them with their flocks and their wives and their children towards our city, and except we make haste, they obtain possession of our city, and our fathers and our wives and our children be slain. It is interesting that the combined armies of the Amlicites and Lamanites were racing towards Zarahemla on the west side of the river Sidon. 
Therefore, Alma made a forced march down the east side, hoping to cut them off. And it came to pass that the people of Nephi took their tents and departed out of the valley of Gideon towards their city, which was the city of Zarahemla. And behold, as they were crossing the river Sidon, the Lamanites and the Amlicites, being as numerous almost as it were as the sands of the sea, came upon them to destroy them. From a military standpoint, this was a moment of the most extreme crisis. As Alma and his nearly exhausted forces came within sight of Zarahemla and started to cross the Sidon River, their enemy came pouring down upon them before they could scarcely get out of the water. With such overwhelming odds against them, the Nephites prayed for God's help. Nevertheless, the Nephites, being strengthened by the hand of the Lord, having prayed mightily to him that he would deliver them out of the hands of their enemies, Therefore the Lord did hear their cries, and did strengthen them, and the Lamanites and the Amlicites did fall before them. And it came to pass that Alma fought with Amlici with the sword face to face, and they did contend mightily one with another. It was almost inevitable that as Alma waded up out of the river on the west side, he would find himself confronting Amlici himself, the very man who had incited the whole insurrection from the beginning. Alma felt everything was at stake, and he sent a mighty prayer up to God for help. In Volume 2 of Treasures of the Book of Mormon, page 169, the fight between Alma and Amlici is portrayed. But Alma had barely disposed of Amlici when he was confronted by the king of the Lamanites. And it came to pass that Alma, being a man of God, being exercised with much faith, cried, saying, O Lord! Have mercy and spare my life, that I may be an instrument in thy hands to save and preserve this people. Now when Alma had said these words, he contended again with Amlici, and he was strengthened, insomuch that he slew Amlici with the sword. And he also contended with the king of the Lamanites. But the king of the Lamanites fled back from before Alma, and sent his guards to contend with Alma. But Alma with his guards contended with the guards of the king of the Lamanites until he slew and drove them back. The fighting by Alma and his personal guards was greatly aggravated by the fact that the west bank of the river was encumbered by the slippery blood and dead bodies of the slain. And thus he cleared the ground, or rather the bank, which was on the west of the river Sidon, throwing the bodies of the Lamanites who had been slain into the waters of Sidon, that thereby his people might have room to cross and contend with the Lamanites and the Amlicites on the west side of the river Sidon. And it came to pass that when they had all crossed the river Sidon, that the Lamanites and the Amlicites began to flee before them, notwithstanding they were so numerous that they could not be numbered. This was an almost unbelievable victory, but the fleeing Lamanites and Amlicites did not return south, but sought refuge in a completely different direction. And they fled before the Nephites towards the wilderness which was west and north, away beyond the borders of the land. And the Nephites did pursue them with their might, and did slay them. Yea, they were met on every hand, and slain, and driven, until they were scattered on the west and on the north, until they had reached the wilderness, which was called Hermounts. And it was that part of the wilderness which was infested by wild and ravenous beasts. And so we come to the sensational conclusion of the Amlicite Revolution. The last verse of this scripture says, And it came to pass that many died in the wilderness of their wounds, and were devoured by those beasts and also the vultures of the air, and their bones have been found and have been heaped up on the earth. Alma chapter 3 In the previous chapter we discussed the war which the Nephites were compelled to fight against the combined forces of the Amlicites and Lamanites. The ferocity of this conflict was so great that the whole face of the land was strewn with the dead. And it came to pass that the Nephites who were not slain by the weapons of war, after having buried those who had been slain, now the number of the slain were not numbered because of the greatness of their number. After they had finished burying their dead, they all returned to their lands and to their houses and their wives and their children. This was a pitiful situation. 
Thousands of the faithful Nephites had been slain, and the bodies of the dead from this genocidal war were too numerous to count. Now many women and children had been slain with a sword, and also many of their flocks and their herds, and also many of their fields of grain were destroyed, for they were trodden down by the hosts of men. And now as many of the Lamanites and the Amlicites who had been slain upon the bank of the river Sidon were cast into the waters of Sidon, and behold, their bones are in the depths of the sea, and they are many. As the record shows, the masses of slain not only included a host of warriors from each side, but vast numbers of women and children had been slaughtered. Furthermore, the Amlicites and Lamanites had practiced a scorched earth policy. They trampled down the ripened grain and ruthlessly killed many of the flocks. To prevent the decay of the dead from causing a pestilence, the bodies of thousands were thrown into the Sidon River and carried out to sea. And the Amlicites were distinguished from the Nephites, for they had marked themselves with red in their foreheads after the manner of the Lamanites. Nevertheless, they had not shorn their heads like unto the Lamanites. Now the heads of the Lamanites were shorn, and they were naked, save it were skin, which was girded about their loins, and also their armor, which was girded about them, and their bows, and their arrows, and their stones, and their slings, and so forth. It is interesting that the Lamanites always came into battle with their heads shorn. They also liked to mount their armor over their virtually naked bodies. They wore only a breechcloth. Then they went screaming into battle with their bows and arrows, swords, clubs, and slings. And the skins of the Lamanites were dark, according to the mark which was set upon their fathers, which was a curse upon them because of their transgression and their rebellion against their brethren, who consisted of Nephi, Jacob, and Joseph, and Sam, who were just and holy men. And their brethren sought to destroy them, therefore they were cursed. And the Lord God set a mark upon them, yea, upon Laman and Lemuel, and also the sons of Ishmael and Ishmaelitish women. And this was done that their seed might be distinguished from the seed of their brethren, that thereby the Lord God might preserve his people, that they might not mix and believe in incorrect traditions which would prove their destruction. And it came to pass that whosoever did mingle his seed with that of the Lamanites did bring the same curse upon his seed. Therefore whosoever suffered himself to be led away by the Lamanites was called under that head, and there was a mark set upon him. It is interesting that the Lord wished to keep the Lamanites separated from the Nephites so long as the Lamanites were in a state of apostasy. Therefore a mark was placed upon them. When the Amlicites wished to be identified with the Lamanites, they painted a huge red mark across their foreheads. And it came to pass that whosoever would not believe in the tradition of the Lamanites but believed those records which were brought out of the land of Jerusalem, and also in the tradition of their fathers, which were correct, who believed in the commandments of God and kept them, were called the Nephites, or the people of Nephi from that time forth. And it is they who have kept the records which are true of their people, and also of the people of the Lamanites. We notice that those who believed in the teachings of the plates of brass were classified as Nephites, those who did not were called Lamanites. Now we will return again to the Amlicites, for they also had a mark set upon them. Yea, they set the mark upon themselves, even a mark of red upon their foreheads. Thus the word of God is fulfilled, for these are the words which he said to Nephi. Behold, the Lamanites have I cursed, and I will set a mark on them, that they and their seed may be separated from thee and thy seed, from this time, henceforth and forever except they repent of their wickedness, and turn to me that I may have mercy upon them. But of course both the Lamanites and the apostate Nephites could still be accepted if they repented. And again, I will set a mark upon him that mingleth his seed with thy brethren, that they may be cursed also. And again, I will set a mark upon him that fighteth against thee and thy seed. And again, I say, he that departeth from thee shall no more be called thy seed. 
and I will bless thee, and whomsoever shall be called thy seed, henceforth and forever. And these were the promises of the Lord unto Nephi and to his seed. Nevertheless, those who had fought against the righteous Nephites could no longer be considered the seed of Nephi, nor could they be heirs to the promises of Nephi. Now the Amlicites knew not that they were fulfilling the words of God when they began to mark themselves in their foreheads. Nevertheless, they had come out in open rebellion against God. Therefore it was expedient that the curse should fall upon them. Now I would that ye should see that they brought upon themselves the curse. And even so doth every man that is cursed bring upon himself his own condemnation. The curse that fell upon the Amosites was deliberately brought upon them by themselves. They not only put a red mark on their forehead, but they put a brand of Satan on their souls. Now it came to pass that not many days after the battle which was fought in the land of Zarahemla by the Lamanites and the Amlicites, that there was another army of the Lamanites came in upon the people of Nephi, in the same place where the first army met the Amlicites. And it came to pass that there was an army sent to drive them out of their land. Now Alma himself being afflicted with a wound did not go up to battle at this time against the Lamanites. But he sent up a numerous army against them, and they went up and slew many of the Lamanites and drove the remainder of them out of the borders of their land. It is amazing that the Nephites had barely cleansed the land of the dead when another army of Lamanites descended on the land. These latest invaders had apparently been mobilized to support the earlier army of the Lamanites, and they came as reinforcements, but they were too late. Nevertheless, the weary Nephites had to arouse themselves and once more drive this pestilence of Lamanites from the land. Now in verse 22, we learn for the first time that Alma, the younger, had been seriously wounded during the earlier war and therefore could not participate in this latest conflict. And then they returned again and began to establish peace in the land, being troubled no more for a time with their enemies. Now Mormon the historian summarizes the events of this whole terrible year. Now all these things were done, yea, all these wars and contentions were commenced and ended in the fifth year of the reign of the judges. And in one year were thousands and tens of thousands of souls sent to the eternal world, that they might reap their rewards according to their works, whether they were good or whether they were bad, to reap eternal happiness or eternal misery according to the spirit which they listed to obey, whether it be a good spirit or a bad one. In this last verse, Mormon emphasizes that the tragic consequences of this fifth year of the judges were all the result of choices made by the apostate segments of the people. For every man receiveth wages of him whom he listeth to obey, and this according to the words of the Spirit of prophecy. Therefore let it be according to the truth. And thus endeth the fifth year of the reign of the judges. Alma chapter 4. In this chapter we come to one of the great crises in the career of Alma. In fact, it led him to undertake a mighty mission and give up his office as the chief judge. Now it came to pass in the sixth year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi, there were no contentions nor wars in the land of Zarahemla. But the people were afflicted, yea, greatly afflicted for the loss of their brethren, and also for the loss of their flocks and herds, and also for the loss of their fields of grain which were trodden underfoot and destroyed by the Lamanites. And so great were their afflictions that every soul had cause to mourn. And they believed that it was the judgments of God sent upon them because of their wickedness and their abominations. Therefore they were awakened to a remembrance of their duty. This had a very salutary effect. It had humbled the Nephites to the very depth of their souls. And they began to establish the church more fully, Yea, and many were baptized in the waters of Sidon and were joined to the church of God. Yea, they were baptized by the hand of Alma, who had been consecrated the high priest over the people of the church by the hand of his father Alma. And it came to pass in the seventh year of the reign of the judges 
There were about 3,500 souls that united themselves to the church of God and were baptized. And thus endeth the seventh year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi. And there was continual peace in all that time. In the seventh year of the judges, Alma had recovered from his wounds and personally baptized 3,000 repentant Nephites. But Alma was disgusted to discover the very next year that the fickle Nephites were becoming prosperous, proud, haughty, and wicked. And it came to pass, in the eighth year of the reign of the judges, that the people of the church began to wax proud because of their exceeding riches, and their fine silks and their fine twine linen, and because of their many flocks and herds and their gold and their silver and all manner of precious things, which they had obtained by their industry. And in all these things were they lifted up in the pride of their eyes, for they began to wear very costly apparel. Now this was the cause of much affliction to Alma, yea, and to many of the people whom Alma had consecrated to be teachers and priests and elders over the church. Yea, many of them were sorely grieved, for the wickedness which they saw had begun to be among their people. For they saw and beheld with great sorrow that the people of the church began to be lifted up in the pride of their eyes, and to set their hearts upon riches and upon the vain things of the world, that they began to be scornful one towards another, and they began to persecute those that did not believe according to their own will and pleasure. It is obvious that Alma resorted to the only means he could think of to stem the tide. He multiplied the number of teachers and priests to stir up the people to repentance, but the results were discouraging. And thus, in this eighth year of the reign of the judges, there began to be great contentions among the people of the church. Yea, there were envyings and strife and malice and persecutions and pride, even to exceed the pride of those who did not belong to the church of God. The growing wave of apostasy had a serious impact on the missionary work of the church. This caused a deep sorrow to come upon Alma as the spiritual leader of the people. And thus ended the eighth year of the reign of the judges. And the wickedness of the church was a great stumbling block to those who did not belong to the church. And thus the church began to fail in its progress. And it came to pass in the commencement of the ninth year, Alma saw the wickedness of the church, and he saw also that the example of the church began to lead those who were unbelievers on from one piece of iniquity to another, thus bringing on the destruction of the people. Alma could see that a breakdown of the Nephite civilization was reaching a crisis stage. There was a terrible neglect of the widows and orphans and the poor and the needy. Yea, he saw great inequality among the people some lifting themselves up with their pride, despising others, turning their backs upon the needy and the naked, and those who were hungry, and those who were athirst, and those who were sick and afflicted. Nevertheless, there was a central core of the righteous saints who tried to uphold their covenants and look forward to the coming of Christ. Now this was a great cause for lamentations among the people while others were abasing themselves, succoring those who stood in need of their succor, such as imparting their substance to the poor and the needy, feeding the hungry, and suffering all manner of afflictions for Christ's sake, who should come according to the spirit of prophecy, looking forward to that day, thus retaining a remission of their sins, being filled with great joy because of the resurrection of the dead, according to the will and power and deliverance of Jesus Christ from the bands of death. The outbreak of contention and persecution of the humble saints led Alma to appeal to the Lord for help, and this verse says, The Spirit of the Lord did not fail him. In fact, it told Alma to resign as chief judge and appoint another in his stead. And now it came to pass that Alma having seen the afflictions of the humble followers of God and the persecutions which were heaped upon them by the remainder of his people, and seeing all their inequality, began to be very sorrowful. Nevertheless, the Spirit of the Lord did not fail him.
And he selected a wise man who was among the elders of the church, and gave him power according to the voice of the people, that he might have power to enact laws according to the laws which had been given, and to put them in force according to the wickedness and the crimes of the people. Now this man's name was Nephiha, and he was appointed chief judge, and he sat in the judgment seat to judge and to govern the people. But what about Alma's office as president of the church? Would he give up his church calling also? Now Alma did not grant unto him the office of being high priest over the church, but he retained the office of high priest unto himself, but he delivered the judgment seat unto Nephiha. And this he did, that he might himself go forth among his people, or among the people of Nephi, that he might preach the word of God unto them, to stir them up in remembrance of their duty, that he might pull down by the word of God all the pride and craftiness and all the contentions which were among his people, seeing no way that he might reclaim them, save it were in bearing down in pure testimony against them. But to bear down in pure testimony against the people was to assume the same kind of mission which Jeremiah was called upon to perform for the Jews in Jerusalem around 600 B.C., It was to carry to them a powerful message of repent or be destroyed. Alma now undertook the same kind of pilgrimage as he went forth among the people in a mighty spirit of revelation and prophecy. And thus in the commencement of the ninth year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi, Alma delivered up the judgment seat to Nephiha and confined himself wholly to the high priesthood of the holy order of God, to the testimony of the word, according to the spirit of revelation and prophecy. If you are enjoying this podcast with W. Cleon Skousen, you might enjoy his lectures recorded while at Brigham Young University, found at skousenlibrary.com.